And in that moment, there is no hesitation. The elements of nature calm. The wind ceases. The waves stop. And then, after miraculously calming the storm, he turns to his apostles and says, why are you so afraid? So they say, why aren't you more afraid? He says, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, and this is, this is a question here that sort of launches us into our lesson tonight, but it's not just a question. It really is the question. It's the question of this gospel that Mark is aiming to answer in the course of writing the gospel. The question is, who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that's the question that the entire gospel aims to address. And I submit to you that among other places, we receive an answer to that question, a a definitive answer in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. And that's where I really want us to spend our time together tonight. So, If you've got a Bible, it really will help you if you go with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Um, This story, a lot of similarities from the account in Mark chapter 4. But in order to really get the full effect here, you've got to read between the lines a little bit. And hopefully, we will all see some things from this text tonight that maybe we've never seen before. Or if we've seen them, it's been a while and they've slipped from our memory. Uh, this text provides the definitive answer to the question, who is this guy? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. It provides the answer, but only for those of us who are willing to see it. And that's appropriate, isn't it? Because Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, presents himself in ways that only those with faith could grasp. We know from the New Testament, from the writer of Hebrews, that that, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Jesus does not come onto the scene in such a, a forceful, irresistible fashion where you couldn't help but say, okay, this is definitely the Son of God. Because we know a lot of people did not accept that, despite all of the miracles and the teaching with authority. A lot of people refuse to believe and, and still, of course, today don't believe. That he's the son of God. And so though he does provide convincing, compelling evidence that he is from above. You still have to have faith in order to accept it. And so we come to this passage as people of faith. With the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And we're familiar with this. With the Sunday school version of this passage, and I do not mean that in a derogatory way, because a lot of us learn these stories growing up, but, you know, when you're a Sunday school teacher, you have to do a little bit of editing, and you have to leave this out and this out and and get to the point so that the kids are not confused and their brains are not muddled with a lot of extra details. And then when you come back to some of these stories later in life, you see things that you never saw before. You, maybe you were never taught. Not because your Sunday school teacher did a bad job, 
But because as an adult, you are able to take in more of the details. I hope that's the case tonight. But I bet most of you are familiar with this story. Let's start in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, and we already talked in Sunday school this morning about how this is one of Mark's favorite words. He keeps the action going at a pretty fast pace throughout the... I mean, he hits the ground running in one chapter one. He doesn't take time with the genealogy or the birth narrative. It is John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, and bam, 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 we are swiftly moving through the narrative at a fast pace. And one of, the, one of the ways that he does this is by including this word, and immediately Jesus did that, and immediately Jesus said that. So if you have trouble, you know, if you struggle with your attention span, Mark is the gospel for you, because you're never in one place too long. He doesn't take too much time with, with uh, any one story. By the time you, you are in that setting and in that context, he's moved on to the next one. Here we go. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. They have been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus performed a magnificent miracle in feeding 5,000 plus people. There were 5,000 men, but that doesn't account for all of the women and the children, and he just from the contents of a little boy's lunchbox provides a meal for thousands of people just from five loaves and two fish. So they have finished with, with that miracle, and they are now headed back over to what was uh, the primary territory for Jesus and his ministry, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But he says, you know what, you go on, and I'll catch up later. And we learn why in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray, which Jesus did regularly. And it's a reminder to all of us that if the Son of God needed time alone with his Father, how much more do we? If the Son of God had to take time, if it was important for him to commune with his Father, then don't you think that ought to be a priority for us as well? It was important to Jesus to spend some solitary time with the Lord. Verse 47, and when evening came, so it's getting dark out, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Now I want us to notice four things in the coming verses that help us to identify Jesus. That will help us to get to the core of his identity. It will help us to answer this question that the disciples ask among themselves. Who is this? And we'll notice these things as we go along. Verse 48, and he saw, and I don't know if this means that he could literally with his eyes look out from his mountain peak and see out onto the sea. You know, we've been watching some of these videos on Wednesday nights, the Ray Vanderlaan videos. uh, And as I just look at the landscape in some of those in this area, this is not... too difficult to believe that Jesus would have been able uh, to see the boat out in the lake struggling. We we read here that it was making, uh, in my translation, making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Mark says Jesus saw this. And I don't know if he really saw it or if this is some sort of a miraculous um, ability here that Jesus has that he can see with his mind's eye what is going on in the lake. Regardless, he notices it. And 
As was common, as we mentioned earlier, on the sea, the winds would, the sea was below sea level and the winds would whip down from the mountain peaks and create fierce winds on the surface of the water. The boat is struggling against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, a time when most of us are, at least I'm asleep during that time, the dead of night, pitch black dark, he came to them. Walking on the sea. I'm teaching Mark with our middle school students at uh, WCA, and I, in their, their notes, I accidentally replaced the O with the I, and it says walking in the sea. And I said, you need to change that back to an O. One tiny letter makes a world of difference. Jesus wasn't walking through the water. He wasn't walking in the water. He was walking on top of The water. And that's the part that I remember as a kid. Maybe you remember, uh, uh, you know, a a miracle. The only person who's ever been able to walk on the surface of water. It's an amazing miracle, but there's more to it than that. I want you to keep your place in Mark and look with me in Job chapter 9 verse 8. And it's helpful for us to remember that Jews in the first century, and these apostles in particular, knew the Old Testament far better than we do today. They learned it growing up. They heard it in the synagogue. They were people of the book. Uh, And they had internalized the word I say all that as a setup for this. You'll you'll know why I said it when we look at Job chapter 9 verse 8. Listen to what Job says about God in this book that was written generations, centuries before Jesus comes on the scene. Job chapter 9 verse 8. God alone stretched out the heavens and he trampled the waves of the sea. Now those apostles on that boat, those earliest followers of Jesus they would have known the language from Job chapter 9, verse 8. They would have been familiar with the idea of their God trampling over the waves of the sea, walking on the waters. And here comes Jesus doing the same thing. And those kind of connections are going off in their minds when they realize who it is. But for us, you know, we don't know Job chapter 9 verse 8, or at least that wasn't a verse that I memorized growing up. And so I wasn't familiar with this language, but they would have been familiar with a God who tramples on the waves of the sea, a God who can walk on water. And here comes Jesus doing the same thing. In fact, the Septuagint, that's a word you hear every now and then. This was just the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was available during the time of Jesus. And it really was the Bible for these early believers. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But by the time we get to the New Testament, most Jews weren't fluent in Hebrew. They didn't speak Hebrew. They instead used a translation of the Old Testament, a Greek translation called the Septuagint. Well, in the Septuagint, we find the same Greek phrase that translates Job chapter 9, verse 8, as we do in the Gospel of Mark. So it's not simply the same idea. 
It's the very same language that Mark uses that matches up exactly with what Job says in Job chapter 9, verse 8, in speaking about God. Isn't that incredible? And we're going to see a lot of connections like this. As we see, Jesus is being closely aligned, closely associated with God. And this is the first of those instances when we find Jesus walking on water, just like God was described as doing in the Old Testament. And here's something else, just in passing. Jesus was up on a mountain, came down the mountain, out on the lake. Where was God in the book of Exodus when he delivered the law to the people? He was on Mount Sinai. All sorts of connections like this. Jesus is walking on the sea. Let's keep reading. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, what does that mean? He meant to pass by them. Why does he mean to do this? Why does Mark include this in the course of the story, in the narrative? I mean, I think if Jesus wants them to see him and to, for them to see that it's him, he would walk to them. And if he wanted to keep his identity veiled for the time being, the scriptures would say he kept his distance from them. He, he walked away from them. But, but instead, Mark says he intended to pass by them. And I believe it's because he wants them to see him pass by. And let me explain that. Because the verb here, there's a Greek verb that's being used, pererkomai. And here I go with the Septuagint again. This, listen, this is just a Sunday night word, okay? I'm not going to throw Septuagint around a lot on Sunday morning. But when you got this crew together on a Sunday night, you've come back on a Sunday night to learn more about God's Word. You can handle multiple references to the Septuagint, can't you? I know you can. Again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they would have been familiar with in their time the same word parerkama is used. Check this out. Exodus chapter 33. Remember what Mark says here. He intended to pass by them. I think if you don't have the background here, if you don't understand this in the context of the Old Testament, you miss so much. You just sort of gloss over that. Maybe you don't even think about it. And you still get the, you know, the good stuff from the story, but maybe you miss... A, a little tidbit here that's going to make it even richer for you. And here it is, Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Listen to this. By the way, this is uh, God on the mountain, Moses uh, uh, interceding for the people. Uh, chapter 33, verse 19. And he said, God to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will make my glory pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Verse 22, skip down. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Again, God to Moses. Chapter 34, verse 6. 
the Lord, and here's when it actually happens, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I think that Jesus intended to pass by them because he wanted them to see him pass by them because he wanted them to connect him with his Father. He wanted them to see, and just them at this point, because as we know, Jesus is concerned about the news getting out too soon. He's trying to keep his identity under wraps with the large crowds because he's very mindful of the timetable and he knows people are not going to understand him apart from his death and his resurrection. And so in other places, when people figure out who he is, demons and humans alike, Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody yet. But this is his group, his apostles, and he wants them to know who he is. And so he passes by them so they will begin to associate him with the Father. So that they will begin to see that he's more than just a good teacher and he's more than just a prophet. And he's more than just even the Messiah or the anointed one. He is God's son. He is God in the flesh. As God passed by Moses, Jesus intends to pass by us. He's trying to tell them something here. Now, are they going to get it? Are they going to see it? Do we see it? Do we get it? And again, um, if you go back to Job chapter 9, verse 11, that, this, this same verb, the same word used in the Septuagint of Job 9.11, Behold, he passes by me. That's Job way back in the Old Testament talking about God the Father. He passes by me. And now we have Jesus, God's Son, intending to pass by his apostles. Cool stuff. Am I right? This is cool stuff. When you really start digging in here and you, and you begin to see all of the various ways that Jesus is trying to communicate with his people, I am the Son of God. I am God come down in the form of man. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 49, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. All right, let's stop right there. Because at a cursory glance, you see Jesus here say, it is I. And you think, well, he's just identifying himself. He's just saying, hey, it's me. It's Jesus. And he is doing that. But again, I think there's more to it than that. Because the Greek here, when Jesus says, it is I, the Greek here is ego a me. Ego a me. Not lego my ego. Uh, Different, that's something different. Uh, These two Greek words together, and the same Greek construction is found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Again, in in the Greek translation, in the Septuagint. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the language of which they would have been familiar. 314, you know this story. We referenced it this morning. God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And let's back up a bit. Verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I going to say? If they say, identify him further, tell us his name, 
what will I say to them? And God said, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent you. Now when you take that Hebrew over into Greek, what are the two words used when God says, I am? It's ego eimi. And here you've got Jesus in Mark chapter 6. When his apostles think he's a ghost walking on the water, he says, take heart, ego eimi. Take heart, it is I. Using the same words that God used in order to identify himself. Just like God in the Old Testament, Jesus calms their troubled hearts by identifying himself as the great I am. Now one more for you tonight as we keep reading. Verse 50, take heart, it is I. And I hope that you will never read those three little words the same when you read from Mark chapter 6. When you, when you see it is I, Remember how God identified himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Remember that the language used is the same. Remember that Jesus is not just saying, hey guys, it's me. He is stating something about his identity and his connection with his father, his close association with his father. One more, Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, even we know, and we are not as dedicated students of the Old Testament as the apostles and others in this era would have been, but even we know what the most repeated command from God in the Old Testament is. Do not be afraid. We heard it over and over again last quarter when we talked about Joshua, did we not? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid because the Lord is with you every step of the way. Do not fear. And I think about Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, when God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jesus says, it's me. You're passing through these difficult waters and I am here in your midst. I am with you. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with him, and I love this, and the wind ceased. You know, before, back in chapter 4, we have Jesus saying, peace, be still. But here we see Jesus is so powerful, he need not even speak a word. His mere presence brings about calm on the face of the sea. As he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. So who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They obeyed him back when we were on the lake before and again this time. Who is this? Well, he tramples on the sea like God. He walks on the water like God. He passes before us like God. He says, it is I like God. He commands us to not be afraid like God. It's got to be God in the flesh. You would think that they would be coming to this conclusion by this point, after all of these not-so-subtle hints, and in fact, I believe of all the miracles, this one brings Jesus into the closest association with, with God. So how did they respond? Verse 52. They did not understand about the loaves. And you know, when you read that, it's like, what? They're still thinking about the loaves? You know, the miracle that came before all this? 
But this is Mark's way of saying that they just hadn't quite gotten there yet. And, and we see here too that he says their hearts were hardened. So they're not only struggling with fear versus faith, with being afraid, their, their hearts are hardened. They haven't opened up their hearts to the true identity of Jesus. They didn't understand what he was doing with the loaves, which of course was a magnificent miracle, but what was it communicating about Jesus? As God cared for his people in the Old Testament by providing manna from heaven, Jesus is providing for people now. He is multiplying this bread by thousands. That was supposed to make them think about God and what God and God only could do. And now Jesus has walked on water and passed by them and and associated himself with God. They're still thinking about the loaves. They haven't quite, quite got it. They didn't quite grasp what Jesus was trying to show them, that he was divine. Now they did in time, of course, come to understand. And we know that uh, in just a couple chapters, Peter would say, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of God. It's the most important knowledge that we can possess in our lives because it is knowledge that allows us to experience eternal life. Jesus is God. I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You know that. You accept that. But has that transformed your life? Do you live in a way that shows God you believe that to be true. That because Jesus is God, He guides your steps. Because He is God in the flesh, He is your example for how to live. He is the one that you are trying to emulate each and every day. You're trying to do things that Jesus would do, say things that Jesus would say. If this truth that Jesus is God has not utterly transformed your life and you'd like to come and confess that and ask for prayers to be an even more devoted follower, or if tonight you have never confessed that wonderful name and repented and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you have the opportunity to do that. What a great chance you have this evening to come uh, and to have your sins washed away to become a new creature through Jesus Christ. If you want to do that, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?